I guess we ought to get started so we can get into our Bible study. Anyone on Zoom care to open for us? We love you, God, and we thank you for Ray, and we thank you for Sandy, and uh, dear Janie has got a sinus infection. I don't think she's on the call. We just thank you for these nice classes on Romans, everything we learn here, and we just pray that it'll be just as good this time as it was every other time. And not to forget, Lord, to mention Linda Lou's visa and Phyllis Orphanage and Unwed Mother's Home in Hong Kong. We pray that the uh, opportunistic Chinese communists will consider it to be a problem taken care of for them and allow it free reign in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Norman. Well, in the book of Romans, we are in chapter 14, Paul dealing with a particular issue that was probably not simply, well, we know it wasn't just at the churches at Rome because he says some similar things to the church at Corinth. So it must have been an issue that uh, plagued the first century church. And certainly we've seen that it's a problem in the 21st century as well. Problem of differing backgrounds and living the Christian life in light of some of these questionable areas. And many of us from different backgrounds feel guilty about certain things that we are actually free from. And unless we are aware of it and grow to understand those freedoms, sometimes they might affect our conscience. And we have to live in light of others as well, recognizing that uh, they may be coming from these different backgrounds that are different from us as well. Now, the verses start in verse 13, but it deals with the restraint of our freedoms. And I'll introduce that in a moment. You've seen this slide enough times. I think I'll just uh, skip over it this time. In our outline, we're dealing with application of God's righteousness. And it runs, this is one of the longest subdivisions of the whole book. Obviously, must be somewhat important. In fact, there are some doctrinal portions that are not as long as chapters 14, 1 through 15, 13. A lot of verses, a lot of them we can go through more rapidly than what we are used to. And the first 12 verses that we've looked at already, re reception of differing convictions. In other words, accepting people right where they're at, recognizing that uh, their background is different and the things that may plague their conscience may be different than the things that we are free and don't plague our conscience. So we need to take that into account, but either way, we accept one another. And we saw the reception of brothers, verse 1, that was the principle, accept one another. Then Paul gives four, at least four reasons, at least I've identified four in the passage, verses 2 through 11, reasons why we should receive one another. Number one, God has accepted them. In other words, they have the same salvation. And Jesus died when they were yet sinners, so he accepts them before they were even believers. So he still accepts them just the way they are, and therefore we should accept them as well. Secondly, he will sustain them. In other words, we don't have to monitor their spiritual life. He's going to sustain them. They will stand and fall based on their relationship with him. So he will sustain them. We don't need to police their spiritual life. 
Then five through nine, God is sovereign. In other words, he is Lord. They are answerable to him as Lord. And in his sovereignty, he can deal with them. We don't have to worry about what God is doing in their life or not doing or what they are doing because the Lord is master. We are not their master. And we concluded last time and took a look at the another reason, the fourth reason, is that we all will stand accountable. So if there's something amiss in somebody else's life, the Lord can deal with it and he will ultimately deal with it. But also we need to be careful not to judge them, not to condemn them or not to look down upon them in this life because all of us will stand before the Lord and give an account. Now, we only looked at verse 10 last time, so I'd like to complete the look at verses 11 and 12 quickly, and then we'll get into that new section or new paragraph beginning in verse 13. So we saw the judgment seat of Christ, but you, why do you judge your brother? That's the tendency. That's the problem he's dealing with. Now, the uh, the weak, the, one, the ones that he describes as weak in faith, they had a tendency of judging those that were free to do certain things that they thought were wrong. So they were judging them and thought, oh, they're not that spiritual after all, or maybe they're in sin. So they were judging them. And then secondly, or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? That was the tendency of those that Paul calls the strong in faith. In other words, the ones that have the better grasp on Christian freedom. Then he gives the reason that we looked at last time, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So we look at the concept of the judgment seat and uh, drew from the background. And I used the slide because some of you have been to the very site and we showed you the photograph of the group last time. I'm patient. Last time I showed the group in front of the, the Bema. Somebody in there. Yeah. This may have been on another trip because I've been there a couple of times. But there was a literal physical Bema that was the place for two things at Corinth at least. One of them involved judgment, and that's why it's translated judgment seat. A judge would hear cases, pass judgment on the crime, innocent or guilty, and pronounce a sentence from this stage or this platform that uh, still remains to this day, dating back to the first century, the Bema. It was also used as a rostrum. I gave you the two passages, one passage in the book of Acts, where it refers to the concept of judgment. I gave you the other one where it talks about Herod standing and giving a speech. And there's not a passage, but I think part of the image of the Bema is the the Olympic Games. And there was a stadium just outside of Corinth that the games would be held and the winner would stand on the Bema and receive his reward. And probably the two images that we have in Romans 14.10, Bema there, is certainly an evaluation, not a judgment per se. We defined that last time. But it was the giving of a, a, a reward, much like an athlete would receive on the Bema at the stadium. So we saw all that last time. And then now he's going to support that from uh, 
scripture, for it is written, referring to the, in this time frame, the Old Testament, and he's quoting, I think he combines two passages. Isaiah 49, 18 is the first part there. As I live, says Yahweh. I'm going to call attention to Yahweh there in Isaiah. Yahweh is God. This is the uh, intimate way of identifying or referring to Elohim. Elohim is the more formal and the more, I guess, general term of God, and it's usually translated God. But in the Old Testament, it, Yahweh would be translated Lord in our English passages and there's the two names of God. Yahweh is more the intimate personal God. Elohim is the creator God that is more transcendent and distant and God obviously is both. So as I live says the Lord. Now we want to call attention to that because in this context he's talking about Christ and I'll show you the slide later on where he mixes the two he uses God and he uses Yahweh in a context of referring to Jesus. And you could even consider Romans 14 as a passage that supports the deity of Christ. Not overtly and not as clearly as like Hebrews 1, what is it, 1.8 or some of the other passages where Jesus is actually called God. But kind of implied, it's almost like Paul freely thinks of Jesus as Yahweh, thinks of Jesus as God because of the deity of Christ. So, as I live, says the Lord, every every knee shall bow to me. In other words, everyone will someday stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and actually, in this context, worship him. And this is the support that uh, Paul uses in terms of us all standing before the judgment seat, and we will bow down, and we will worship him. Hey, Ray. Yes, sir, Steve. This uh, believers and non-believers, isn't it? I think the Isaiah passage, yes. I think it's a kind of a broad, general passage that pertains to both believers and unbelievers. And interestingly, he's applying this to the believers. Remember we said only genuine believers stand before the Bema. There's other judgments where the unbeliever will stand, like the great white throne. But the Isaiah passage, I think, is broad in that it includes every knee shall bow to me. And not only every knee, but uh, because it's Hebrew poetry, it kind of gives another line. And every tongue shall give praise. And notice here, it's God. And in the Old Testament, we have Yahweh and we have Elohim. So both names for God in a context that is talking about the judgment seat. And even though it says God here, everywhere else it talks about the judgment seat, it's in reference to Christ. Second Corinthians 5.10 describes it as the Bema of Christ. And that judgment is before Jesus Christ. So Paul just kind of mixes these words just freely because Jesus is fully Yahweh, fully God the doctrine of the Trinity. In fact, this next slide, I kind of bring that out. We've been seeing throughout the passage, beginning in verse 3, referring to Theos, or God, in a context of Christ. Verse 4, Kurios. Kurios in the New Testament would be, in some context, not everyone, but some context, the equivalent of Yahweh in the Old Testament. 
Lord, and in the Old Testament, Lord, New Testament, Lord, it's kurios. In verse 6, we have the Lord three times, and then we have God two times in the context of Jesus. Verse 8, Lord three times, referring to the believer. He is the Lord. He is the master over the believer. Uh, Verse 10, we saw the judgment seat of God, but it's of Christ. And then now we have in verse 11, Yahweh. And then at the end of verse 11, we have God again in the same passage. So implying and subtly supporting the, uh, the deity of Christ. So we've already seen the receiving of brothers in verse 1, and then we saw four reasons, 2 through 11, why we are to receive one another. And now he kind of reemphasizes that judgment seat idea in verse 12 the review before God, and I break it out because it's grammatically a little bit differently. It's more of a conclusion. So in verse 12, so then, each, kind of a summary as well, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. So we have God again giving an account to Christ. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. And again, here we have kind of the general name for God, in a context of standing before the judgment seat of Christ. So on our slide here, not only in verse 11 at the end we have God, but verse 12 we have God again, subtly supporting the deity of Christ. So that ends verses 1 through 12, and the main emphasis will be that receiving of one another. So the context for 13 through 23, 13 through the end of the chapter, is going to continue this same issue. And the main issue is preventing the conflicts in these questionable areas. These conflicts are in, inevitable unless we keep in mind that uh, there are going to be differences between different people depending on their level of uh, understanding of freedom, Christian freedom, and depending on the background and the things that they come out of. I've said several times, as we've already looked at several verses, that the issue in the first century oftentimes were Jewish people that came from a very legalistic background. They had a hard time eating bacon or ham sandwich. In fact, I think it would have been a, a fun time for the very first time that somebody put a ham sandwich before Paul. I wonder what I wonder what expression he might have had on his face. He said, babies. <laughs> That's right. So, so that was a major problem. They also had a problem with observing the Sabbath. They just felt guilty unless they observed the Sabbath after they became a believer and didn't realize some of the passages we've seen in the New Testament. In fact, we'll review some of them again. And now we are free. In fact, we are free to enjoy everything that God has created. Now, there's parameters, I mean, not to excess and that sort of thing, but basically we can enjoy all the good gifts that God has given us and enjoy the time frame. We're not restricted in terms of time. But from our backgrounds, uh, we, as believers, are in different places, and some things cause some believers to become uh, stricken in their conscience because of that background, and we want to prevent that. So that's kind of the whole theme of this whole section from 14.1 to 15.13. 
preventing these conflicts. And Paul is giving guidance in terms of that prevention. So 1 through 12 that we've just completed, the main theme of the whole thing is accepting others with the differing convictions just where they're at. And that includes both the strong and the weak. The weak are to accept the strong and the strong are to accept the weak. Now, he takes a, a, a different turn beginning in verse 13 through the end of the chapter. And I describe this as beginning in verse 13 to 23, the restraint of one's own convictions for the benefit of others. So kind of another major theme, and he's going to have several verses. What is it? 11 verses here to kind of hammer home that concept of we are totally free and we don't lose our freedom. In fact, uh, we should even in some cases die for that freedom that we have in Christ in the right circumstance. But in other circumstance, if it's going to have an effect on a brother or sister, then we voluntarily and willingly restrain that freedom in in love towards them okay we don't lose that freedom we are free in christ but for the benefit of those around us there are sometimes the occasion that we need to restrain the freedom that we have so when we're not around that belie- that believer or we're at our home we are free to partake of whatever foods god has presented or whatever freedoms he's given us And we never lose that, but we voluntarily, in love, restrain it. And I think that's the major theme of 13 through 23, is the restraining. So he's going to talk a lot about that. And particularly, in fact, these verses are primarily directed at the stronger believer. 1 through 12 dealt with both. Now, some of the verses seem to emphasize one over the other, but in general, he was dealing with both the strong and the weak. The weak accepting the strong, the strong accepting the weak. But now the majority of these verses deal with the strong and when he is to restrain himself in in his freedom, freedom in Christ. And that's certainly applicable today. There are people that have the freedom. And in fact, in Christ, we have the freedom to partake. An example that strikes us in this day that comes to mind is alcoholic beverages and wine particularly, but even others. Uh, I know of Christians that have the freedom to drink beer. Now, in my case, I'm kind of, uh, what's the word? I'm free, but I have no desire, mainly because of the what I saw it do to my father. So I have an aversion to it. But if I partook, I wouldn't necessarily feel guilty. I would be free. But because of that background, I just restrain from doing it. But others that are free that participate in that area will restrain themselves because it's an issue in our culture. You know, there are some that feel that it's not the right thing to do and it's, uh, it's a dangerous thing. And in some contexts, it is a dangerous thing if you're amongst those that have a problem in that area. So that's just one example. There's other examples as well. So 13 to 23 deals more with the occasions that we need to be sensitive to those around us. And for the benefit of them, we restrain. And another thing that comes to mind, I think leaders, because of their position, have to be especially careful 
in terms of the things they partake in. And they have to be extra sensitive and uh, limit their freedom. And I know lots of pastors that limit their freedom, particularly in church settings and are free else uh, uh, otherwise in other circumstances to participate in a lot of things they wouldn't otherwise. So see the difference in themes. So we're kind of shifting now from accepting one another to the restraining of one's freedom. Not that you lose your freedom, but uh, you voluntarily restrain. We can break the passage down into different parts. I break it into two parts. There are several here, primarily exhortations. In fact, counted at least 14, or you can, some of them are not direct commands or direct uh, imperatives, but they're phrased in such a way that they're encouragement along certain lines. And I counted 14 of them. We'll look at some of them. And I divide it into two parts. The first part, 13 through 18, exhortations on these restraints. And then I further break that down, verse 13, exhortation against stumbling blocks. Or you might even summarize that. I kind of camped on one of the words there. But this is kind of the broad general statement that he's going to give. And everything else is kind of supporting and adding to this general statement. In verse 13, Therefore, in other words, based on what he said in verses 1 through 12, based on accepting one another, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. And I think he's primarily focusing on the strong, even though he used that word. We've seen this word occur about six times already. Crino, same word. I think he's applying it to the believer or the strong believer because the strong believer he is also making judgments. In other words, he's considering or regarding, we saw that way of translating it, he's regarding the weak believer as weak, I guess, <laughs> or less than, or, or uh, a nuisance, <laughs> nuisance to my, to my freedom. So let us not judge one another anymore, crino. And the anymore seems to indicate that uh, this already is happening and already is an issue. And I'm going to give you a list of these exhortations. I said there were at least 14. I don't think I have a list of all of them. I've kind of combined some of them. But the first one is don't judge convictions, verse 13. Let us not, kind of uh, even including himself, let us not judge, judging convictions. And there's another one, but rather determine this. Now, interestingly, you can't tell from the English, but we've already seen this before. Remember, he used the word to judge in a different sense. Now he's using the same word. The word determine here is crino. So you could even translate it, therefore let us not judge one another anymore, but rather judge this same identical word, which tells you we, I won't go over everything that we said concerning word studies and the way that language works, but the same word has different nuances depending on the context. And here's a striking example where even the translators make it very evident that uh, there's a different sense here. So the word to judge not only has that idea of to stand in condemnation of something or somebody, 
but it simply has the idea of to make determinations. In other words, I'm going to do this rather than this. So you're determining between two different options or three or whatever. That's the basic idea of the word crino, just to make different considerations. Remember we saw the word translated regard. One regards one day a certain way, another one regards another day. Regard, that's crino, same word. So word, this is the way words work. Now you don't think about it, but we use words in the very same way. Uh, we can refer to a certain thing with one word, something slightly different using that same word. So here's an example, and I think... I'm not writing I just like, why not use the word if it means the same things? Well, but what I'm saying is it means slightly different things. In that context, though, you said determine that judge. No, the is word is, this, is the identical word for judge. <laughs> is that the second exhortation, though? Yes, I haven't shown it on the screen yet, but we've already, I've already shown you this slide where this idea of judgment permeates this whole passage. We have a different word in verse 1, and then in 3 through 4, we have crino, two times in those two verses. Then we have it again uh, two times, and it's translated regard in verse 5. In other words, come to the conclusion to something. It's like a judgment. I regard this such and such. And then we have, and obviously two times there, and then in 13, judge, and not only the judge, but now also determine. Same word, crino, used in different senses. And what do we do to determine? In other words, a, a negative and a positive, but rather judge this or determine this or come to this conclusion, not to put an obstacle, and we've seen this word already, it's... In fact, I'm a little unsure why they translate the second word stumbling block because the word obstacle could be the same thing. Anything that you can put in front of somebody that would cause them to stumble. Anything that you put in somebody's path to cause them to stumble. And sometimes, in fact, in chapter 9 when we were looking at it, it was translated stumbling block. Remember the stumbling block? Christ is the stumbling He's the rock of offense and stumbling block. That's the word that's obstacle there. Then the second word has more the idea of setting a trap, and it was used in hunting animals. In other words, you would put it out in the field, and when the animal tripped on it, its foot would get caught or leg would get caught in the trap, and the trap would engulf it, and then you could get the animal and eat it or whatever. So, But the main idea, he's using two images of uh, ways of harming other believers. And by not restraining our freedom in some areas, it's like causing somebody to stumble and break an arm or have some harm. And or it's like getting them in a, in a trap. And for some people that are addicted to certain things, using the alcohol example, if a brother sees, for example, somebody has the freedom to drink certain things, certain alcoholic beverages, and they realize, well, this is Christian freedom, but if they have a weakness in that area, then uh, they can get trapped, if you will. They can go back to maybe an addiction, or it can lead to an addiction. And for that individual, if they don't have that freedom because of the weaknesses that they have. So it's like setting a trap in this way. If you're disregarding 
anyone around you that uh, may have these weaknesses. So when we interact with one another and get to know each other and have social interactions, we need to be very careful what things we partake in. And again, not that we lose our freedom, we voluntarily restrain that freedom. So to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. So he's talking within the context of believers, within the body of Christ, uh, within those that have the same faith that we have. And now this leads to the second exhortation, not only not judging in verse 13 convictions, but now not causing harm. And I'm calling attention here, in, in the first one, it's not an imperative. In the Greek, it's a, uh, what is it called? A subjunctive, including himself. But this one is a clear Greek imperative. So it's a strong command. In fact, I think this one's an aorist imperative. I'll have to remind myself of it. So don't cause harm. Another exhortation. And we're going to see a series of them. So that's the exhortation against stumbling blocks. And now he's going to clearly define and specify this issue of freedom. And it's going to be crystal clear. He's talking to the strong believer, assuring him, you are free, but you have to restrain depending on the situation. So verse 14, I know. Right. Go ahead, Joe. I'm just trying to be uh, clear here. You are referring in chapter in verse 13 to um, two words, um, and so I'm wondering: is the stumbling block uh, an obstacle? The two words that you are comparing or contrasting, yeah. as far as yes. uh, the word. not setting a trap or whatever. Yes. The first word that's translated obstacle, and I can't remember the Greek word, but it is in other contexts translated like a stumbling block. Anything to put in somebody's way that causes them to fall or stumble. That was the first word, translated obstacle. The second word that is translated stumbling block <laughs> is has the meaning of setting a trap. Great. Uh I'm looking at the Greek here, and yeah. they are two different words. Yeah, they're two different they're, words, yeah. They're very similar, yeah. But they're different. Wait, setting a stumbling block is setting a trap. So to me, it sounds like, okay, stumbling block would be unintentional. Setting a trap is intentional. Intentional, very so good. it's a similar word, but the intent is different. Yeah. Actually, in Strong, Strong says that the second one, which happens to be scandalon. Scandalon, um, mm-hmm. Offense, thing that offends, or stumbling block. That's their definition. Okay. Occasion to fall of stumbling. Then it says offense or thing that offends. Okay. And Marlene uh, has got a real good insight in that one is perhaps unintentional, the, uh, the first one, setting an obstacle. But the other one seems to be more intentional of actually setting a trap. It's a good insight. Then verse 14, two more words now, I know, and here it's not ginosko, in other words, not knowing by experience, but it's more the knowing intuitively or inherently, it's the word oida, we've seen both these words in different contexts. In other words, I know 
In other words, this is reality, this is inherent knowledge, and am convinced, in other words, uh, all of the evidence points towards this conclusion, I'm convinced in this area. So he's kind of re-emphasizing this idea of freedom here. I know and I'm convinced, and if that's not enough, he says, in the Lord. In other words, the Lord has revealed this to me, and this is certainty, this is true knowledge, this is absolute, this is not questionable, if you will. So I know and I'm convinced that nothing is unclean in itself. And what he, this is very broad, and he's dealing with primarily the things of, of, at issue here, but it can extend beyond that as well. In other words, whatever God has created, he has created very good things, and he's created them for us to enjoy, to benefit from, and to, in fact, even be fulfilled in them. In other words, there's every food is available, and... There's no restrictions in terms of certain days. And I've said three times now, I think, that Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. In other words, we don't have the requirements of the Sabbath imposed on a different day. Sunday was the day that we celebrate basically our freedom because of the resurrection. We celebrate Christ's resurrection, and it does not have all of the legalistic requirements. Some people that come from those backgrounds impose all of that on Sunday, and now this is where we have issues and condemnation. Well, you know, you should worship on Sunday. You can't watch football. <laughs> you can't do you can't do certain things because it's the Sabbath. You need to keep it holy. It's the new Christian Sabbath. We are free even on Sunday, no particular days, so that nothing is unclean in itself. And God has provided all of these things for our benefit and our good. Now, again, the only restrictions are in excess, but we have guidance on that in other passages. And we self-restrain in the situations when it'll do damage to others. It'll be a trap or a stumbling block to others. This in that in this context, more to strong than more to the yes. weak. Yeah, more to the strong. In fact, this whole paragraph is okay. primarily to the... Uh, I think what he's... He, he's going to talk a lot about this restraint, and before he gets into some of the details, he wants to assure them... In fact, what he, he's agreeing with the strong believer. In other words, the strong believer is free to, to eat bacon or ham or shrimp or whatever, and other things, <laughs> and what he's assuring him that uh, that's okay, that's okay. Nothing is unclean in itself. In other words, there's nothing inherently wrong with any of these things. The only thing that made them wrong is that God put limitation on his people to make them a separate and distinct people. But inherently, there was never anything wrong with pork, necessarily or shrimp, or whatever. In fact, we can look up a few passages, and we'll do this by reminder. Would someone, including any of the Zoom people, look up that key passage, and this is from Jesus, 7, 18 through 23. In fact, let me flash some of these others. We won't look up Acts 10, 
But First Timothy 4, that one's a good one to look up. If I can get a couple of volunteers. Uh, Mark 7, 1 Timothy 4. You got it? You got Mark? No. Uh, do you want to do 1 Timothy? I got, looking something up? Okay. I got 1 Corinthians. Okay, you got 1 Corinthians 8. Okay, good. You got Mark 7, 18 through 23. Read it so that the Zoom can hear you, Zoom people. So he said to are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever from outside cannot defile him? Okay, did you catch that? Anything that comes from the outside doesn't defile. That includes pork. That includes shrimp. That doesn't defile. Even a Jew. Okay. Keep reading. Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all food. And he said, what comes So he purified all foods. This is a change. We have a change in dispensation. We have new conditions. Keep reading. And he said, what comes out of a man, that defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of men, evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, consciousness, witness, deceit, licentiousness, evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolish, all these evil things defile him. Okay. So Jesus <laughs> gives a long list of things that defile, and they all come from the heart. All kinds of evil things. Not what goes into the stomach, but what comes out of an evil heart. That's what defiles. And in fact, uh, some versions at the end there say, you're set it in the middle, declaring all things clean. In other words, making a radical change from the Old Testament dispensation. All right. And you remember the Acts 10 passage where Peter sees a vision of the sheet with unclean animals on it. And God tells him three times, eat. Peter says, I can't. I'm a Jew. <laughs> I don't want to be defiled. Uh, and Jesus tells him three times. And then at the end, basically, he's declared all things clean. So it's an illustration, not only what you can eat, but in terms of treating different people. And later on, he's going to use that vision to open the door to Gentile conversion. First Timothy 4, you got that one, Karen? 4, 2 through 4, read it. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to stain from which God created to see, the thanksgiving by those who believe and know. For every creature of God is good, and nothing refused if it's received. Okay, so we can eat any creature, any animal, if it's received with thanksgiving. Now, this is different from the, the law that God had specified for a period of time, but we're not under the law anymore. So does that mean we go somewhere we're not sure of something? The fact that we pray over it and thank God for makes it easier. Yeah. Even meat offered to idols. That's 1 Corinthians 8, and Steve's going to read that one, 8 through 13. This is the context of eating meat. In fact, Prior context, there's no such thing as an idol in reality. We make them into idols by bowing down to them. Go ahead and read that one, Steve. A New American Standard. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. So it doesn't matter whether you care eat that this or whether you don't eat. We're, no, we're not any the better, is what the text says. Sorry, Steve. Go ahead. Thank you. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Same idea. For someone's, 
Same For idea. if someone sees you, go ahead. Who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For though your knowledge, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died, and so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. And in the context of eating meat that is actually offered to idols. But, and this is in a, not a Jewish context, but more a Gentile context, and some Gentile believers that came out of that culture and now become believers, they think that that meat is tarnished in some way, so they will avoid it. And if they have not understood the freedom that they have in Christ and the, the reality that there are really no demons, then you can cause them to stumble. Very parallel. Like today, we went to someone's house who was a Muslim, and they bragging about the fact that the food was right. really Muslim. We have freedom to eat it. Yes. But I would think there would be some hesitation because of their bragging, because of their claiming it mm-hmm. so strongly. You supporting right that, what they are considering. Yeah. Right, that it would almost be like a support of Right. And that might be a different issue, though, yeah, than the conscience issue. The issue is the conscience here. And First Corinthians brings that out even in more detail. Yeah. And then the last part of the verse, nothing unclean itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Now, he's not saying that sin is relative to what we think. He's, he's not saying that. There are, we've made it clear there are absolutes. In other words, the Bible makes clear that there are clear sins. The context of what he's saying here is in the context of these questionable things in the areas of freedom and background. So it's not that sin in general is relative. There are absolutes. But in these areas of questionable things, if somebody thinks that this is unclean from his background, a Jew that can't eat ham, for example, uh, he hasn't grown a believer, believing Jew, uh, to him it is unclean because it's going to affect his conscience. And that's the point here. His conscience is going to be hindered. And when the conscience is hindered, it affects the spiritual life and the spiritual walk. And that's the stumbling block, is putting these obstacles that damage another's conscience. And and now, or it can even go beyond that in, in the physical realm, in the example that I use, for example, with somebody that has a tendency towards alcoholism or a background from that. So it can be a beyond even the conscience, and they can go back, and you can ruin their life. In fact, he's going to be very strong in the next passage here. We'll see that. So to the one that has does not have that freedom, those things are unclean or those things are prohibited to them. We need to be sensitive to those things. And then in verse 15, an exhortation against damaging, this is that strong passage. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. 
Now, it's put in the negative here, but the encouragement basically from the positive is, in fact, we should take these into account, and when we do that, we are walking in love. So the positive, and I framed it as a positive, walk in love in 15. And it's not strictly an exhortation, but it's an encouragement along the lines of, as we are careful in these areas, we are actually walking in love. So I've got the red, like a red stop sign. Don't judge convictions. Don't cause harm. And that's a strong imperative. And then I've got the go, the green light. Walk in love. So we can turn it into a positive, even though the text frames it as a negative. And do not, here's a strong passage. Do not destroy with your food him whom Christ died. The word destroyed is a very, very strong word. In fact, this is a good place to probably stop for today. But that word is sometimes used, and some theologians use this as a support for the idea of eternal damnation or eternal damage. And that word, I'll give you examples of it next time, but that word can be used, in fact, John 3.16. What's John 3.16? For God so loved the world that what he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not be eternally destroyed, shall not perish. Same word. Same word. This context deals with the believer. So it does not have that harsh eternal sense. In fact, the word is used in at least three different ways. And in, in the context of believers and in this context, it, it is a strong word in that you can do severe spiritual damage, but you're not taking away anybody's salvation. In other words, we're secure in that. Some people use this passage for that because of that word. And it is a strong word, and I'm not minimizing the, the, the meaning of the word, but in the total context, of, it's not referring to eternal things. And there's other contexts where that same word, for example, to destroy in terms of taking a life, physical life, it's used in that context. And in reference to believers, it, it like a passage like here, doing severe damage to somebody's spiritual walk. And maybe the example that I've used before, a believer that is perhaps in fellowship with the Lord, but has a weakness in the area of alcohol, and they see you freedom drinking wine or whatever, and they say, well, it's okay, and it's not going to hurt me. And if they get addicted to, back to their addiction, if that's the background they come from, it can totally undermine their Christian walk and do severe damage. Now, those are, I think, probably extreme cases, but the, the word is very strong, and we can do damage if, in fact, we're not restraining. And he says, do not destroy with your food and even though it's specific, I think he's referring to any of these areas that we need to restrain our freedom. Do not destroy with your food for whom Christ died. In other words, God sent his son to die for the very one that is in view here, the the weak believer that we need to be careful and actually turn the middle part of the verse into a positive and actually walk according to love. And love is the determiner in terms of 
restraining the freedom that we have. We don't lose that freedom and we can exercise it in other contexts, but in certain contexts, we need to be more careful. And that word Yes. Yeah, I think that might be a different one, but I'll have to check it. Yeah. Near that, Ray. Connie was referring to verse 20, where we have the same concept, if not the same word. I'll have to remind myself of what the word there is. So we have a fourth exhortation. Don't destroy believers. Very strong word. And this one is the in the imperative, imperative mood in the Greek text. And the issue of best things, we'll have to look at this next time, but very quickly, therefore do not let what what is for you a good thing. In other words, ham is good, pork is good, watching football on Sundays is good. <laughs> Don't let those good things be spoken of as evil. And then he's going to give the example of there's more important, higher priorities than just eating and just watching games on television. Kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So he's just kind of adding support to this idea of restraining ourselves in certain contexts because we're motivated by love and we want to walk according to love and uh, think more about our brothers than exercising or enjoying all of the freedoms that God has given us. Okay, any other comments before we close in a word of prayer? So we can watch the Olympics today. Yes, with a clear conscience. <laughs> I was going to comment earlier that this is in the Bible that certain drinks are not for kings. You said rulers, you know, I think you were talking about spiritual ones. And Lemuel prophecies, I mean uh, Proverbs. What about him? I, I'm not quite understanding. Strong drink is not for kings uh, oh. in the book of Proverbs. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's certainly some warnings concerning certain foods, but there's also certain freedoms as well. All right, let's uh, spend a little bit of time in prayer, and we're praying for Phyllis. And I mentioned before you got here, Connie, that I was able to see her in the flesh, yeah, not just Zoom, and she seemed to be doing well. She's in the, she was walking well, yeah, didn't have a crutch. Let's do it. And Father, uh, thank you for this teaching out of Romans. Thank you that you're all loving, you're wise, you're holy, you're perfect, and um, and that you you do speak to us and you convict us and you change our minds you help us to consider you as the deity as the supreme king and you you really do help us in the details of our life daily living and we do thank you for that we praise you that uh you died for us and that you rose again and that we have the power to live life for you and we give you the glory and the praise in all things.